What is good, everybody? We have finally made it into Romans 15. We're actually moving along. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited. I really am. Um, Oh, I got to give y'all some news. We finally got some real snow down here in Oklahoma. And I can finally whip out the old beanie and make some snow angels with my girls. I'm excited. And this winter may or might, may not be a bad one, depending on where you live. Um, so I'm just going to be praying that wherever you are, that God keeps you warm, keeps you safe, provides for you. And if I sound a little bit uh, raspy, I'm coming down with something. I don't know what it is. I hope it's nothing bad, but I apologize for the raspiness in my voice. But we're going to hop straight into this. We got a lot to cover today. We're getting through seven verses. And so we're going to read the first seven verses like we always do. And then we're going to break them down verse by verse. Romans 15 verses 1 through 7. Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. All right, hopping straight into verse one. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So if you remember back to our first conversation on Romans 14, we broke down this dichotomy between the strong and the weak. And from the context clues that Paul gives us, it seems fairly clear that the weak in Rome in general were the Jews. And the strong in general were the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were considered strong in faith because they didn't have problems with seeing certain foods as unclean or unhealthy or certain days as um, more superior than others. They were strong in the sense that they were able to just eat of anything and partake in, in anything since it's all created by God. And another way which they might be seen as strong is they might be strong in numbers. Because we have to remember that Claudius Caesar, right, kind of right before this letter was written, he had exiled the Jews from Rome for about five years. And then they come, you know, back into, into Rome and start filling up the church again. But Throughout that five years, it's very likely that the Gentiles would have grown in comparison to the number of Jews that were there. And then the Jews in this context were generally seen as the weak. One, because they most likely would have been outnumbered. And they also struggled with aligning their, their conscience and their beliefs with the truth that all foods were clean and all days should be considered alike because they're all made and created by God. And this leads us to the last context clue that leads me to the conclusion that the the strong are considered to be the Gentiles and the weak, the Jews, is that Paul says in the very first verse, he says, we who are strong. The language that Paul is using is lumping himself in with the strong camp. He considers himself to be one of the strong. 
And he describes the duty of the strong as having an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And back in chapter 14, Paul makes it clear that when it comes to this issue of food and holy days, he has no problem with it. In verse 14 of chapter 14, if you remember, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So with that in mind, if we hop back to Romans 14 verse 2, and we take that into consideration, when Paul says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. It's clear from what Paul is saying that the weak have problems with food, but the strong in this context are those who have no problem with eating certain food. They have no uh they have no conscious issue with eating certain foods. So with that being said, he's lumping himself in with the strong and he expects the strong to not lord their strength over the weak, but to take that opportunity to uplift and support the weak as they go through this transition. And I think, I think transition is a good way to think about it. Because we have to remember that for many of the Jews, these traditions... And these beliefs surrounding food and holy days and circumcision and these other matters, they're all tied to the Torah. They're tied to the law. And and the law taught that in order to be seen as righteous, in a sense, you had to follow these food laws and observing these holy days and observing the practice of circumcision. But now they have Paul coming along. And Paul's like, oh, yeah, by the way, the, the law that, that you know we've all been following, it doesn't have an effect on our lives anymore. This thing that is, has guided your people for thousands of years and has kept you together and has uh, continued to expose your, your failings, th- this law, the, the Torah, it no longer has a binding effect. So you could imagine that all of a sudden they they decide to start following Jesus and one of his disciples is telling them that their their doctrine almost is no longer in effect that would have been a difficult transition and we can see this play out in a smaller way in our own lives for many of us when we come to Christ it becomes a wake up call we go from living our own lives, living our own sinful ways, doing whatever we wanted, living for ourselves, to now all of a sudden we're being told that I, I have to sacrifice my, my desires in order to follow Christ. I can't go out and, and get drunk and sleep around with whoever I want. I, I can't just do these drugs. I have to completely devote my life to Christ. It becomes a transition from one mode of living to another. And this transition period is not easy, and Paul expects the strong, those who don't have to struggle with this transition, he expects them to uplift their neighbor and uplift their community, and especially to not focus on pleasing themselves. He continues this idea in verse 2. He says, Let us each please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So notice the immediate contrast 
from the end of verse 1, where Paul says, do not please yourselves, to the very beginning of verse 2, where he says, so let us each please our neighbor. And the question that we should be asking after verse 1 is saying, well, what are we to do if we are not to please ourselves? Like, why would I do this if it's not to bring me some sort of gratification? And Paul's answer would be verse 2, that, uh, hey, you need to please your neighbor. And don't just please your neighbor for your own sake because it'll make you look good in the community or make you feel good about yourself. No, no, no. Do this. Build them up. Please them for their own well-being, for their own sake. Do it to build them up. What Paul is doing here, we may miss, but he's reminding them of the building blocks of their collectivist society. Because in a collectivist culture, they expect to be able to rely on their community for help, which is a complete 180 to how individualistic cultures do things. I'm in the middle of selling my house right now, and of course, I'm going to need help to move all of my things, uh, to get advice on on you know getting a new place to live. Like it, This is a big process. It's the first time I've ever done anything like this, and my first thoughts were not to uh, go ask my family or my neighbors or my friends to assist me with the cost of moving, with moving things, with guidance. Like That was not my first thought, being an individualist in my culture. My first thought was, I need to figure this out on my own. I need to do the very best I can, and I need to be able to stand on my own two feet and do this on my own, and this is a complete backwards way of living for this collectivist community that Paul was a part of. They understood that they had to rely upon each other for food, shelter, provision, guidance, any sort of help, especially since it was common for many people at this time to be poor, to be impoverished. E. Randolph Richards and Richard James say this in their book, Misreading Scripture, with individualistic eyes. They say collectives think of reciprocal dependency more in terms of we give to we. We are a group, and the support flows constantly between people who are we. This reciprocal giving reinforces and solidifies the sense of we. It was the glue of the ancient collective world. That's why, while collectives may be very generous and hold high expectations for members of their group, they're less likely to give to those outside of their group. If collective groups with very limited resources give to outsiders, they may struggle to survive themselves. The Gospels reveal that people in the world around Jesus thought in this way as well. Jesus says in Luke 6 verse 33, And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. End quote. So Jesus even points out that uh, a part, if you're a part of this collectivist community, you're expected to do good to those within your community. And why should you get credit for that? Because that's what you're expected to do, a part of this collective group. But also, as the authors point out, collective groups had a sense of we give to we. It wasn't an idea of I give to you. It was we give to each other. 
This is just how we survive. This is how we operate. But since the the amount of resources was so low in these ancient times, people groups were hesitant to give to outsiders because they couldn't count on the outsiders um, being reciprocal in giving back what was given to them. So understandably, collective groups would be hesitant to lend and support those outside, especially, and, and here's where I'm getting at, with, with the situation in Rome. This same sentiment would be especially true if the two groups have multiple disagreements on theology and doctrine and beliefs. If they're already unwilling, for the, the most part, to be giving and supportive of outside groups just based on um, where they live or ethnicity or backgrounds, how much more would they be hesitant to share and give and uplift outsiders if they have disagreements on theology? And this is, this is what Paul's getting at in Romans 14 and bleeding into Romans 15 is that these aren't disagreements on doctrine. These aren't disagreements on foundational beliefs. These are disagreements of opinion. And so this should not separate you into separate tribes. This should not, uh, this should not dissolve the body of Christ into various groups. You're all a part of one family, and Paul is reminding them throughout this whole letter, you're not two separate people. You are one people under Christ, and under the promise and family of Abraham. So with that in mind, Paul is reminding them of their collective duty to support those within their tribe, in their tribe, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they believe that all foods are good or that certain foods are bad, whether they believe that certain holy days should be kept or that holy days shouldn't be kept, whether they believe that they should be vaccinated or unvaccinated, whether they vote Democrat. You see where I'm going? All of these differences of opinion. Paul says, that doesn't matter. You're a part of the same tribe. That is why you need to, like he says in verse 2, Please your neighbor for their own good in order to build them up. That is the whole crux of Paul's argument. And Paul qualifies his pursuit for this other-focused love or this collective love. He, he qualifies this with an example of Christ. In verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul saying, hey, remember how Christ didn't even live to please himself, but rather he died and suffered for what all of y'all did? And he, he quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9, and I absolutely love this psalm. The psalms are so cool. I'm sure many of y'all know that. The psalms are so cool, but I like Psalm 69 in particular because it really does show, it shows the struggle, the 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 difficult living side of following God that is not always highlighted in modern churches, which is unfortunate. But the first part of verse 9 is quoted in John chapter 2, verse 17. And this is happening when Jesus is cleansing the temple. Y'all remember he was flipping tables, driving the money changers all out the temple. Jesus, Jesus was 
changing some things, right? And when this happened, the disciples remembered this saying from Psalms. And it says, quote, zeal for your house will consume me. And a quick side note, that normally many commentators have claimed that this quote is talking about how zeal or passion for God will cause his spirit to consume you and fill, fill you up. And it's it's portrayed in this really um, great light, like, oh, yeah, passion for God will consume me and it'll be great. But this is a complete misunderstanding of what the psalmist is saying. Let me read you part of Psalm 69 to help make my point. We're going to start in verse 5 and go down to verse 12. It's a really good portion. He says, Oh God, you know how foolish I am. My sins cannot be hidden from you. Don't let those who trust in you be ashamed because of me. O sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, don't let me cause them to be humiliated. O God of Israel, for I endure insults for your sake. Humiliation is written all over my face. Even my own brothers pretend they don't know me. They treat me like a stranger. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I weep and fast, they scoff at me. When I dress in burlap to show sorrow, they make fun of me. I am the favorite topic of town gossip, and all the drunks sing about me. So David in this psalm, he's very clear that he is facing anguish and public insult and humiliation because of this zeal and this passion that he has for God. And when it reads, zeal for your house has consumed me, the Hebrew for consumed literally translates to eat up or devour. This is not a a happy moment for David. David is feeling like he is being consumed, brought closer to death because of his love for God, which, which can be a real, a very real reality for some Christians today who face persecution because they love God. But nevertheless, when the disciples recall, recall this quote in John 2, they change a word. John changes a word when he's uh, recalling this, and it's actually really in- in- interesting. Because the word in the original quote is, zeal for your house has consumed me. But in John, it reads, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is subtle messaging by John to show that the zeal that Jesus has for his father's house, the temple, will ultimately lead him to death. And so with that context in mind, with the context of passion and commitment to God in certain circumstances can cause you to be closer to death because Unfortunately, the world just hates God. With that in mind, when we go back to Psalm 69.9 and what Paul is quoting, saying, the reproaches of those who reproach you fall upon me, or the insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. We have to understand that in this Psalm, David is receiving all the hate and slander that God receives because David has passion for God, and that's the closest thing that these people around him can attack. So when you compare that with Jesus, who took on all the insults, all the pain, all the attacks for God, because he is God, and he did so in order to serve us and not himself, this really should make us rethink 
our hesitancy to be uplifting to those who disagree with us or who are not at the same place as us when it comes to our faith and beliefs. Paul is saying, if Jesus took all the attacks and the pain and the insults of everyone who hated him, everyone who sinned against him, which is each and every one of us, and he did that not for himself, not to please himself, but he did it for you, then what excuse do any of us have to not extend that same level of love and commitment to our neighbors? Paul is really raising the bar here. Look what he says in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is a helpful verse to remember when looking at the Old Testament and thinking about our relationship to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the Torah. Uh, Many Christians today are so ready to throw out the Old Testament because we've been told that we're no longer under the law. And people, for some reason, they seem to extend that to all the teaching of the Old Testament, that it is useless and it does not matter. And Paul certainly thinks that this idea is foolish. One, because he just used the Old Testament to support his command to serve others, and him and many other New Testament authors constantly use the Old Testament to build their theology and to base their teachings and to base the things that they tell us. The Old Testament, even the law, can be used to instruct. It can be used to edify, especially the parts of the law that we're no longer bound to. You can, at the very least, See the principle that God enacts throughout the Torah, because one thing that we know about God is he's changeless. He's the same today, yesterday, tomorrow. He he doesn't change. God is the same when it comes to his decisions, his moral stances, and his commitment to us. So when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the law and we see the things that are in place, At the very least, we can derive principles for what God was ultimately trying to achieve. And since we understand that God does not change, then that means that the principles that God wanted to enact in the Old Testament to ancient Israel, we can be fairly certain that the same principle and the same moral guideline that God has, he would ultimately want to continue to hold to today. On to verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in according in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I love how Paul points out that we need the God of endurance and encouragement. Because the things that Paul is asking them, and by extension, us, to do, it's not easy. And you will fail. And you will stumble. And that is why we need the gift of endurance and encouragement. Because ultimately the goal is harmony. So we can glorify Jesus Christ. If you remember, 
last week, we talked about Paul's concern for the church's image in its community. And if the members were fighting and quarreling over opinions, they would have they would have sent a very poor message to the surrounding city of Rome and any other communities that would be in contact with them. They would have seen them as ununited and tribal. And that would have been very hard for them to show any sort of glory to God from their community. But Paul's purpose for this instruction is far greater than just settling little disputes and matters of opinion in the church. It's about guiding the church to be a status of being the light in the darkness. It's about having the church as a whole, as a collective unit, clearly be seen as a group that is ready to serve and love and give to all people and to share the love of Christ. And ultimately, that's what we need to try and exercise more today. We have a big problem with being tribal in our societies. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to break down in Romans 14 and Romans 15. And we would be foolish to continue to live in these ways.